We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by someone who hasn't been on the program before, but who does fascinating work and I've wanted to talk to for a while. That would be Patrick Brown of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where he is a fellow. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Emily. Great to be on. Of course. Why don't we just start, if, if you could, tell us a little bit about your career, since it's your first time on the program, and how you ended up at EPPC. Sure. Well, I've been listening to the Federalist Radio Hour for, for a while now, and so it's a, <laughs> a pleasure to be on. Uh, I uh, was on the Hill for a number of years working for Senator Mike Lee and, and a good team at the uh, Congressional Joint Economic Committee, working on uh, a couple of different projects relating to uh, associational life and the strength of families, uh, family affordability and, and investment in early childhood. And after that, uh, Ryan Anderson, my boss, gave me the call and asked me to come join the team at EVPC. So I've been there since uh, last summer. And again, just expanding on some of the work that I've been doing, thinking about what it means to have a pro-family economic agenda. Because conservatives have always done a very good job about talking about the importance of family as a cultural institution. We know that, you know, two-parent households are really important for kids doing well in school and, and going on to live healthy and thriving lives. And, and again, we, we know the importance of families in our own lives. But when it comes to the cultural pressures on families, uh, those are also backed up by increasing economic pressures on families as well. And so as the right has these conversations about declining fertility and declining marriage rates, it's important to think about what public policy can be doing to alleviate some of those burdens. And so that's what I've been focusing on at EPPC. Yeah, and just as we stay on that sort of 30,000-foot level, um, I was thinking about this just yesterday, how difficult it must be for people who devise policy solutions uh, to some of these big problems to translate into policies, into meaningful policies, uh, solutions, because so much of this, obviously, we know this and the listeners know this, is deeply cultural, um, but there are solutions that aren't just cultural. There are things government can and should be doing. So as you're, you know, sitting at the Joint Economic Committee or EPPC thinking about uh, how to craft a policy that will will help people uh, sort of in an immediate sense, what is that project like? That has to be really tricky. Yeah, it is. And it's important to not treat everything like it is a public policy problem, because you're right. If you look at, take birth rates, for example, the reason why people aren't having babies is because a, a growing number of people are finding values uh, or finding meaning in things that are outside the family. A lot of people want to put off having kids until they have, you know, gotten that promotion or finished grad school or uh, whatever, you know, travel the world. And so that's not a policy per question per se. That's a question of shifting values. And so we have to be careful about looking at the landscape and saying, well, this is clearly something a better public, public policy can fix. Now, at the same time, that, that doesn't mean that policy is totally irrelevant the conversation either. When it comes to things like trading off uh, between work and family life, we can ease some of those trade-offs through better public policy. We can make the opportunity cost of parenthood, right? Because if you're uh, a woman in the workforce and you want to have a kid and you and you take some time out of the workforce, that's a lot of potential earnings you're giving up. So, okay, are there ways that public policy can make some of that burden a little less burdensome for, for parents? Because parents, when, when you have a child, they, you know, they have diapers and formula and food and all that other stuff, that is a cost that you bear individually. But the benefits flow to society because we need more people. We need, you know, with declining birth rates especially, we need uh, the, the, the benefits of having additional children are 
flow to the society in a number of different ways. And, and so we, we want to be incentivizing that and encouraging that for people who, who want to have kids. So what are public policy solutions we can do to, to ease some of those trade-offs? And, and I'll just say one thing that we see in the data is uh, in this, in this most recent two years since COVID, obviously uh, a lot has changed and, and a lot of it, uh, led to a new way of thinking about the trade-off between work and family life. And a lot of people have more flexible work arrangements. And we've seen for native-born U.S. women, especially college-educated women, uh, an increase in their fertility because now they're able to work from home or do some flex flexible scheduling. And so those are ways of thinking about the sort of economic trade-offs of, of having a child or, or starting a family that, that should influence our decisions on, on how we can construct public policy. Yeah, and again, just sticking on that sort of, this sort of broadened aperture, um, the Joint Economic Committee is something that a lot of conservatives, especially on the the so-called new right here in D.C., are very familiar with uh, the work that Senator Lee had you all doing over there, which was so important and interesting. Can you tell us, for folks who might not be familiar with it, uh, what what you guys were doing over at the JEC? Yeah, it was a project, and I give full credit to Senator Lee for being interested in this because a lot of policymakers, especially at that time, it, weren't keeping their eye on the ball of our sort of associational life, right? This goes back to Alexis de Tocqueville and Robert Putnam, and we were talking about the importance of the things that we do together as a society, or, or the, the uh, churches and neighborhood groups and Little League and all that kind of stuff that that is the actual, that gives actual meaning to life, you know, and again, it starts with the family and you know certainly back in in uh you know the, the mid 2000 2010s when when senator lee started talking about this stuff and, and forming the team these issues just weren't as much on the table and so it was really important for a congressional committee to start analyzing okay what is the state of our associational life what is driving some of the declines that we're seeing and in um, you know, religious affiliation and, and uh, connection to work, and again, uh, f fertility and marriage rates as well. And it's important to recognize that not all of this is happening just because uh, people are, are choosing not to go or not to uh, you know, start a family because they don't want to. Some of it is, is economic, like I said, and, and some of it is because we're actually a richer society than we used to be, right? So if we're not joining the Kiwanis Club or Toastmasters, and you know, like the way we used to, some of that's because, well, now we have, uh, again, the opportunity cost of, of joining a, a club is higher because that's time you're not spending at work or, or whatever. And also because you can find some of that uh, some of the benefits, some of the material benefits that used to come from civic organizations or unions or that sort of thing through the marketplace. You know, there's there, you can find a handyman through an app or you can have health insurance uh, through the uh, Obamacare exchange or something. Right. So these are these are cha changes that are are happening because of culture, but also of economics. And only looking at one lens or the other gives you a distorted picture of, of what's actually going on. And so when it comes to stuff like family life or, or having kids, it's important to be thinking about not just you know, the millennials who only want to have avocado toast and travel the world. I'm sure there are a few of those who, who don't want kids. But also, you know, there's people who struggle to, you know, pay off student loans or, or certainly buy a house uh, or buy a bigger car, that sort of thing. And those are some of the issues that we should be thinking about as well. Yeah. And, and who are being totally uh 
screwed basically by government policies and in, in no small part. Um, I wanted to ask Patrick, this is sort of great timing that we're talking right now, because uh, as you know, I quoted you in a piece that you wrote in um, my profile of Kevin McCarthy that ran recently because you contrasted uh, McCarthy's commitment to America with Jim Banks's family plan. And Jim Banks's plan was, I think it was like 12 pages long. Uh, Kevin McCarthy basically put out a one pager um, just so that Republicans had an agenda to run on in the midterms and could say, you know, we're doing A, B, C, D, and E. Uh, but the bank's plan was really, really interesting. Um, I wanted to ask if, if you could tell us a little bit about what you liked in the bank's plan um, and, and why it sort of struck you as a positive step. Yeah, no, I think for any politician, it's important to tell voters what you're going to offer them, not just what you're going to protect them against. And I think that's what the McCarthy plan, uh, they said it was a plan, really focused <laughs> on was saying, we're going to you know, try to drive down inflation and we're going to protect you from some of the worst excesses of some of the Biden administration's you know, crazy build back better type schemes. I, and that's important. That's kind of like the first step, right? But I think going beyond that and actually giving voters a reason to be excited about it and, 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 and dealing with the sort of pain points in, in the things that parents actually care about is what really struck me about the the banks and the the, the Republican study committee's uh, family policy agenda and and again, this is this is a, a laundry list of like 80 plus recommendations I don't have any expectation all of them will come to the floor for a vote but it's a signal that again Republicans are starting to think about family policy for a long time family policy was something you would hear talked about as like oh well that's something they do over in Scandinavia or and in, in more recently over in Hungary right we're going to be explicitly using the power of the state to try to craft family life in a certain direction whether that's getting every parent into the workforce and in somewhere like you know, Sweden or Norway, or whether it's you know explicitly subsidizing in as many births as we can in Hungary, um, I don't think either of those are quite the right model for the United States and what we need here. But thinking about the right, recognizing that how we set the status quo is a choice, right? We can we can choose to orient our public policies in a pro-family direction and treat the family as the fundamental, the the integral unit of society, or we can try to do what's best for the market and just say, well, as long as we have GDP growing and, and inflation under control, people will just kind of sort it out amongst themselves. And it, well, that's the most important thing to focus on. I think a lot of Republicans uh, tend have tended to be more in that camp to say, well, let's just really focus on getting the business climate right. And everything else will kind of work itself out in the wash. And I think what Banks did and, and, and the other members of the RSC is really thinking about the economic drivers of some of the instability for family life. So they're talking about things like expanding parental choice and childcare programs and giving parents more flexibility when it comes to workplace benefits. Is it a perfect plan? No, I'd love to see it go further, but it's an important step to, to engage in that conversation as well as addressing, you know, critical race theory and LGBT stuff in schools and some of these other cultural hotbed and issues that, that really um, you know, worry parents just as much as the pocketbook stuff. But you have to be talking about both of them. And that's something that I thought McCarthy's one pager kind of fell down on. Yeah, no, it's interesting because Banks, I think, is clearly very responsive and the Republican Study Committee is clearly very responsive um, to thinkers like yourself and to the work of places like EBBC um, and certainly to what we've published a lot about at The Federalist, that the family is the engine of prosperity in, 
that means you you really have to put the family first as you're devising policy solutions. And that's just not something that we've seen from the Republican Party. I can't remember when that would have <laughs> when that would have happened. But is it your sense as well, Patrick, as somebody who works on this every single day, that there are now mainstream uh, influential people in the Republican Party who are listening and are responsive to people like you? Well, I hope so. I mean, I think it's important <laughs> to recognize that this is not new in the sense like there have been discussions about this in the past. When the Reagan administration was first coming into power, there was a group of, of folks on the religious right who really thought this was the moment to pass family policy legislation, talking about uh, school prayer and, and some of these other hot button issues of the 80s. That never came to pass. In the 90s, uh, some of the enthusiasm that went into the contract with America was actually driven by folks on, on the sort of social conservative side of things who saw the child tax credit as being a way of, of affirmatively supporting families. And I, I I love the child tax credit. I think it's a great program. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, Ralph Reed and, and the Christian Coalition and that those kind of uh, actors leaned on the sort of business-friendly side of, their, of the party and said, this is really important to us. We need to include this. And they did, and, and they got it passed. And, you know, it's, it's sort of been... Uh, the the junior partner in the Republican coalition for a long time. And, and sometimes they've been heard and a lot of times they've been pushed to the side. And so now we're seeing in the sort of populist era that we're in, I think everything is kind of more up for grabs than it used to be. And certainly the, you know, traditional chamber of commerce, you know, GDP overall uh, kind of Republican is, is taking a back seat now. And, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be focusing on, you know, making the economy work better and supply side kind of stuff. It's certainly in an era of high inflation, that stuff is important. But the energy and the enthusiasm, I think, is, is clearly on the side of people who are taking this stuff seriously. And you look at somebody, oh, well, like a Marco Rubio, right? And, and Rubio has certainly thought about these questions very intentionally and, and has had his own kind of evolution on some of these topics. And the the legislative package that he put forward after the Dobbs decision came down over the summer was, I think, the most substantive and, and really most creative response from a Republican policymaker, talking about the need not just to, uh, you know, protect life in the womb, which, again, is, is sort of a, a baseline principle of, of what it means to be a pro-family, pro-life conservative, but also recognizing some of the economic factors that, that might push women into abortion and, and, and providing more social support and and empowering civic groups and, and, and nonprofit organizations to kind of build that web of support around pregnant moms. That's a language that Republicans haven't always been good at talking in. And so having that uh, that attention to detail and that that willingness to engage on what some of the economic drivers are is really essential again there's a lot of republicans who are, are who are increasingly sort of talking that cultural talk and, and talking about making it possible for a family to live on a single income and i'm really glad to hear that but then i think the next question has to be okay how are we going to do that and I, I i do think we're starting to move in that direction We talk about predatory tech companies all the time here on Federalist Radio Hour, but did you know your internet service provider knows literally everything you do online? It's true, and think about that. You might as well just be handing your laptop to a stranger and opening up your browsing history. That's why having a VPN is an absolute must every time you go online. I want to tell you now about one of the best VPNs out there and easily one of the most affordable ones I've seen. 
PIA. PIA stands for Private Internet Access, and they take privacy seriously. Not only does PIA hide your IP address, it encrypts your entire connection. This protects your internet activity from everyone, your internet service provider, network admins, or any hackers out there just itching to steal your most sensitive information. PIA is the world's transparent VPN. They never record or store user data, and their no-logs policy has even been verified in court. You also get endless entertainment options. Not only does PIA work with all major streaming services, but it's one of the few VPNs that supports P2P file sharing, so you can download just about anything. You can connect to over 83 countries using their world-class servers, and there's a server for every single U.S. state. You get your own dedicated IP address for 100% anonymity. It's available for all platforms across all your devices, and just one membership can protect up to 10 of your devices at the same time. PIA has over 30 million downloads. See for yourself how it makes browsing so much better. And again, I just love that it encrypts your entire connection. You can connect in every single state with its own server. Amazing. And you can do that on 10 of your devices at the same time. That's a great deal. Right now, go to PIAVPN.com slash Federalist to get a whopping 82% off your VPN service, plus four free months with a two-year plan. It comes out to around two bucks a month, and you just can't beat that. And there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. That's PIAVPN.com slash Federalist for 82% off private internet access. PIAVPN.com slash Federalist. Yeah, and let's go in that direction in this conversation. Uh, tell us, you know, you, you recently wrote about abortion. We can stay on that topic in particular. What should a Republican Congress do right away to uh, provide economic or create economic conditions that lessen, you know, women's desperation in, in cases where they can choose life? Yeah, well, I think it's important to recognize that a lot of abortions are chosen not because uh, women are are you know sort of cavalier about the decision, but because you know a lot of the modal, or as I should say, that the most common scenario for a woman who chooses abortion is for a mom who's already had a child at home, or maybe multiple children at home, and just feels like I just can't feed another mouth right now. And so, if we can alleviate some of those pressures that that nudge a woman towards choosing abortion, I think that is a goes a long way towards being actually pro-life and, and really authentically building a culture in which, you know, as, as the saying goes, abortion is not just illegal, but unthinkable. Again, protecting human, human life in the womb, that's that's the that's the baseline. That is essential. And that's something that I think, you know, we're, we're seeing Republican lawmakers figure out a way towards in, in certain states, maybe better than others. But then you have to back that up with recognizing that that a lot of women are choosing this not necessarily because they want to, but because they feel forced to. And that's where things like expanding, you know, there's some of it is going to be traditional social safety net spending, like you know, the, the, the SNAP program, the, the food stamp program for women, infant and children. Uh, that's that's kind of our our best way of providing targeted resources to make sure that, that moms are getting the nutrition and and the assistance they need but there's other safety net programs too you can imagine uh, you know medicaid for postpartum moms which is something that states like tennessee and south carolina have already expanded trying to address some of those material concerns that that might push a woman toward thinking i just can't afford this kid right now and then of course there's a sort of 
communal aspect to it too. And again, this is where I really like the Rubio bill. It recognizes that a lot of women who are in these circumstances feel alone. Maybe their boyfriend walked out on them or they, they feel like they're not getting the support they need from their family to welcome a child into their life. And they, they feel like, oh, I'm going to be judged or I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time balancing all these different responsibilities I have. And that's where catalyzing the work that, that groups are already doing, right? I mean, the pro-life movement has been so helpful to, to women in crisis pregnancy centers and, and, and groups that reach out birthright, give them the support they need. But but I think catalyzing that with, with um, you know, government dollars, is, I, I think, is an important next step. And we've seen states like Texas and Indiana put millions of dollars into crisis pregnancy centers and, and other resources to kind of build that web of community support around pregnant moms and, and help them walk that journey through delivering a healthy baby. And again, that first year of life, home visiting programs and that sort of thing. So it requires maybe a little more spending than some of our, our limited government uh, conservative brethren might be comfortable with, but it, it's not going to break the bank. There's, it's, it's, in the grand scheme of thing, this is not what's going to drive higher inflation. And it's it's important to be demonstrating our commitment to being pro-life, again, from that moment of conception and, and, and truly walking with that woman all the way through. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Um, and you write a lot about the fertility crisis, which is not something that I pay a ton of ten attention to, but every time I kind of dip into the topic, I'm just sufficiently terrified and uh, befuddled. And then I just go back to like reading about the Kardashians or whatever, uh, who do not have uh, really a, a fertility crisis in, in their family. <laughs> so, uh, Patrick, that, that's not to say uh, the, the um, you know, I, just tell us basically what people should be looking at when it comes to fertility. You wrote recently about what's driving down fertility, looked at some new studies and looked at actually a, a new survey. Um, I, I actually just found this in my inbox and wanted to ask you about it. What, what should folks be looking at um, when it comes to that, that question of declining fertility? Yeah, well, I mean, really, the biggest driver of declining fertility is twofold. One is, is that single parenthood, which was on the rise for uh, decades, really plateaued in 2007. And, and after the Great Recession, we've seen it drop by about 20%. So in some respects, that's the win that a lot of conservatives have always been fighting for. Single parenthood isn't great for the mom, and it's certainly not the most stable environment for the kid. And so driving down single parenthood is actually kind of a win. But unfortunately, that's coupled with a decline in the marriage rate and people pushing off marriage to later and later in life. The average age at, at, for someone who's getting married now is about age 30 compared to uh, 23 back in, in 1970. So that's a huge sea change sort of demographically. And so pairing, pairing those two things together, people having fewer kids out of wedlock, which is a good thing, and people getting married later, which is, uh, you know, I would say a bad thing, but at least at least not a, not a pro-fertility thing, means that we're seeing fertility rates slump. And, and this is something that was happening even before COVID. In 2019, we, we were seeing record low birth rates at the time, and that was at a booming economy. And so something's changed with the logic of childbearing. You know, it used to be that, that women um, without a college degree kind of would have a lot higher fertility because the the opportunity again going back to this idea of the opportunity cost of having a child well if you're not earning a lot or you're not working in a job you particularly care that much about having another kid is is wonderful and and you, it gives you something for your life to be about and that logic's kind of changing uh, we see in the data that non non college women women without a college degree are now acting in their fertility behavior a lot more like college women do where they're much more intentional about when they want to get pregnant about some of the 
the costs associated with that and, and, and delaying having a child until they feel quote unquote ready. Now, again, that, that's probably, you know, a, a, a salutary uh, development for a lot of those kids who are going to be born because, it, you know, again, you, it's, it's, it's out of a good desire to want to be a good provider for their child. But I think in some cases, people sort of overestimate how much they need to be prepared to be a parent, right? And certainly if you're a college educated woman and you're waiting until you're 30 or 35 to get married, um, you know, you're, you're sort of available biologically, your, your sort of window for having a kid is shrinking. And, and a lot of women, unfortunately, have problems getting pregnant when they get into their mid to late 30s or early 40s. And so, you know, these are all, again, going back to how we started this conversation, some of this might be an economic trend towards people prioritizing having a stable income and having a house and some of these things that maybe policy can do a little bit better job of smoothing over some of those trade-offs, but then some of it's a, a cultural change well as well. And I think it's important to recognize that you know people might just be choosing to have fewer kids because they they get more value out of not being a parent right they, they want to again do do whatever it is with this with their life that they want to do but you know th those aren't questions that policies is well suited to change and that's where the sort of cultural institutions uh, that the churches and the colleges and and some of our other institutions need to be making it easier for to talk about, you know, hey, let's let's think about what your ultimate values are here in life, and 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 how we can be making it easier for people to get married earlier. And, and if you're concerned about the fertility crisis, uh, then you should be concerned about making it easier for people to get married. <laughs> well, and something interesting about uh, maybe the common thread uh, with a lot of these policy solutions is that they kind of buck what the Chamber of Commerce line would be. You know, you'd get a lot of, if, if they were serious sort of proposals in a Republican Congress to pass this legislation, you can bet there would be uh, lobbyists from various business groups, um, you know, coming in against that kind of stuff. But the Republican Congress right now, if there is a Republican Congress in January, uh, it doesn't have quite as good of a relationship with some of those folks as it used to. That's not to say that there is no relationship and no incentive to placate some of those folks, uh, but the relationship is a little rockier than it used to be. So, Patrick, how do you feel about potentially a Republican Congress uh, like looking at some of this stuff and, and passing it and sort of having the uh, f having the stones to to stand up if they you know get swamped by business interests or by uh, other folks telling them they're they're spending too much money um, if there's a Republican. Congress Congress in the next the next year. Yeah, I, I think that's a big question. I, obviously, I, I think that the sort of Tea Party era of you know we need to get government small enough to drown it in a bathtub that that kind of mentality is just so far in the rearview mirror whether some on DC want to recognize that or not. The question is what we're going to how we should be orienting public policy, not whether uh, you know what not whether public policy should exist. You know, a profiling policy. It recognizes that how you set the the status quo, how you set the groundwork matters, and 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 not making a choice on you know if we're going to be providing paid leave or, or something like this, in effect just says well whatever the market determines is the right outcome is the right outcome, and I think that's not a sufficient answer for the you know for families and for parents, and so you know I don't know you know, the, the the big question is how serious are Republicans going to be about governing, and I I hope that they take this seriously. I, I I do, you know, have my sort of black pill days where I, I think that we're going to spend a lot of time on sort of culture war issues that that aren't really relevant to the daily needs of, of American families. And I, and I hope that we're a little smarter than that and, and can deliver on some of the some of these ideas. You know, 
and, and again, recognizing that we're entering or we're in a period of, of record high inflation. And so part of what distinguishes a conservative approach to family policy from our friends on the left is a recognition of trade-offs and recognizing that we can't just spend billions of dollars uh, on pro-family policy because we have good intentions. There are still unintended consequences and there are still inflationary pressures with, with just writing a blank check for you know a huge child tax credit or something. So that's why it's important for people to be you know doing the work, right? To be to be really engaging in the public policy process, and, and, and you know, senators like Marco Rubio again. I'll, I'll mention him one more time, but but Mitt Romney as well have put together plans that are fiscally prudent. You know, Romney's, for example, his child benefit plan is basically paid for by finding uh, other provisions in the tax code that we can kind of collapse into a monthly benefit for families. And that would be a huge win for working class families who might be trying to make it with a, a single parent, sorry, with a parent at home, a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad, and one parent in the workforce, you're effectively, you know, kind of trying to make us meet with one hand tied behind your back. And having a more robust child benefit like the Romney plan would do actually makes life a lot easier for those families. But again, that that's something that can be done in a fiscally prudent way. And I, I hope that Republicans will take that seriously as something they'll focus on, whether it's in the last years of a Biden administration or hopefully a Republican presidency starting in 2025. I think that could be a real big win for, for Republicans to be delivering for families. We've had a lot of debates here, actually, about specifically about the Romney policy, because I see it as a, um, a a really interesting glimpse at what the sort of tug of war is ideologically in the Republican Party right now. And, you know, I, I could kind of go either way. I'm generally opposed to it for different reasons. But on that note, Patrick, I want to ask um, what other kind of creative. I mean, that's one thing I actually do like about the Romney plan is it's creative and new. Like it's, it's a new idea that Republicans have come up with to tackle, you know, one of the biggest challenges that for too long was just sort of assumed to be downstream of a good market. You know, if the if the if things are going well in the economy, things will be going well for families. But uh, that is, really goes the other way around, as we know. Um, what other policy proposals have folks like you've been working on that you think people should be t- paying attention to, like interesting, new, creative stuff uh, that's on the table? Yeah, well, I think the. I, you know, again, I think the biggest thing we can be doing is is just making parenthood more less financially burdensome for parents. So again, whether or not you like the Romney plan or, or some of these other plans that are out there, certainly uh, my old boss, Mike Lee and Senator Rubio have their version of the child tax credit expansion. These kind of things that just put more money in parents' pockets, I think is the best way to go because rather than trying to funnel it through different programs or, or creating some sort of alphabet soup of government bureaucracy, you're really just saying, hey, look, we know having a family is expensive, especially these days. We're just going to trust you to figure out what's right for your for family. So whether that's paying for diapers or childcare, or paying for private school tuition or, or school uniforms or whatever that is, um, we're just going to make that life a little easier for you and, and recognize that that parenthood is something that's that's socially valuable and and really something we want to be rewarding. So I'll just kind of put the whole child benefit discussion to the side because I think that's really important. But what else can we be doing? Well, I think the one of the biggest supply side things is making it easier to to own a home. Uh, make or, or, or afford housing in general. And that comes down to to making it easier to build. And that's something that Republicans uh, are, have generally been good on at a theoretical level. Sometimes we get into some back and forth about what that actually looks like when it comes to uh, you know, neighborhoods and, and development, and that sort of thing. But but 
building new housing is like the cornerstone of, of what a pro-family agenda needs to look like because having a you know having affordable housing and making it easier for people to to have a roof over their head and not be paying 30 or 40 percent of their paycheck towards rent every month is is we know from the social science literature that people who have who own their own home uh, have higher fertility, and when people are renting and, and, and housing prices go up, they feel poor. They are less likely to have a kid, and we, we know this to be the case in, in high rent states like California and other places. Uh, that that fertility has has fallen, especially you know, among people who are sort of constrained by that. And so if you live in a red state and, and you don't want to have the social problems of a place like California and New York, you really need to be leaning on on lawmakers to making it easier for, for people to build houses and and, uh, and and increasing the housing stock to, to help especially young families and, and people just starting out in life be able to afford that starter home and, and find and build a little equity to feel like they have the stability to, to start a family. And then you can talk about some of the other sort of traditional family policy stuff, giving parents more choice in education, I think is, is a big one. That's a one that's personal for me, uh, but also explaining that logic into childcare too and, and, and recognizing that in early childhood, the sort of big government program that the left wants is never going to fly and, and is not good for parents, but, but giving parents a little more flexibility in, in recognizing that, especially for, for parents that have both, uh, for families that have both parents in the workforce, more more options in childcare is never a bad thing. And and, and leaning on, uh, yeah, for uh, sorry, religious childcare providers and, and the the great work that they do, welcoming them into the system rather than trying to freeze them out like the Democrats were trying to do with Build Back Better. That's an important part of the pro, uh, the solution. Stuff like paid leave. Again, there's different proposals that are out there, but having that discussion and 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 really recognizing that parents don't want big government solutions. That's not what they're asking for, but they're asking for politicians to recognize that some of these pain points, some of these things that, that really take a bite out of their paycheck, childcare, housing, healthcare is another one. These things really do make family life a lot harder for, for parents. And so, and again, going back to the, the, the CRT and, and other stuff in the schools, that's another thing that, that does drive parents crazy that we can be directly addressing. Having an agenda that is responsive to those needs and those those problems and, and saying, this is what Republicans are going to do for you. I think that's going to be essential to really leaning into being the parents' party for, for Republicans. It's not just about culture war stuff, although that's, that's a part of it, but it's really recognizing where family life has become more difficult and how we can be using public policy to kind of shift some of the gears to make it just a little easier for parents. And, you know, the housing point is exactly the kind of thing I was hoping you would you would say, because that is just such an important thing that gets t basically ignored by people on a national level. Um, and it's a small thing. It's not something, I mean, it's not small, but it's sort of like its own little isolated thing that people might not think about, um, but has a huge ripple effect on, you know, whether people feel comfortable enough to, to start a family, which we know, as you, you've already established, Patrick, is a huge reason that they don't start a family. Um, I mean, it's it, it reminds me, though, actually, to ask you, what we're seeing on the state level. Um, have you seen Republican legislatures working on the state level uh, really thinking seriously about any of the stuff or implementing meaningful solutions? Yeah, a little bit. Um, not as many as I'd like, but I think we're starting to see signs that, especially in the wake of the Dobbs decision, people are, are waking up to the fact that you know, this is a time for Republicans to really lean in to being the, the party of parents. And and this started with uh, Glenn Youngkin and, and the sort of 
uh, backlash to a lot of the craziness that was going in public schools, but it's it's grown beyond that now. And I think, again, this sort of fully pro-life, pro-family agenda is starting to take shape. And, and you know, on the housing front, I, I like to say, if you, if you want to make it easier for people to build families, you need to build baby build, right? I mean, like, this is something that is is very free market in, in some respects, because we're just trying to say, look, there's a lot of environmental regulations. There's a lot of permitting red tape that goes into just being able to put a stake in the ground and, and building a dang house, right? Let's get the government out of the way of a lot of that and just make it easier for the market to clear rather than layering oodles of red tape on on trying to actually build a house. And, and I think one of the states that has uh, a surprising new uh, plan from, from the governor up there is, is Montana. Now, Montana, you wouldn't think, oh, that's not New York City, that's not San Francisco. But in some of the places in Montana that have become COVID hotspots with, with people fleeing uh, Seattle and, and Portland to try to find uh, refuge in, in somewhere like uh, Helena or Butte, um, they've actually seen housing increases, uh, housing price increases too. And so they are worried about having the same problems that, you know, where you just can't afford a place to live. If you're a working class family and you're in the Bay Area, you got to live out in, you know, Sacramento or, or something and, and commute in. That's terrible for family life. And so Montana just put out a, a proposal that would eliminate a lot of these needless restrictions on where you can build and how you can build and just trying to in, markets are incredible tools when we use them in the right way. Not everything needs to be a market decision. Certainly, you know, there are some things that we want to protect from the, the logic of the market, like the family. Um, but there are some times where the market is is the best at delivering uh, a, a product at the at, at an affordable price. And that's I think the housing market is one that we've, we've handcuffed for too long. And a lot of it, you know, stems from the 70s era fear of overpopulation and we we're going to, you know, use up all our natural resources. And that's just not a thing I'm concerned about in the slightest. I'm more concerned about underpopulation these days. And so if we can get rid of some of those antiquated rules around environmental regulations and, and, and zoning and some of these other things, we can actually make life a lot easier for families. And so I'm excited to see some states moving on that. And, you know, it's one thing for, I mean, we've seen like incredible sort of a revolution on the homeschooling front, on the school choice front over the last couple of years because of COVID, because of them overreach and education. And it's been amazing to watch families start homeschooling and taking family life more seriously in all of these different ways. Uh, but, you know, that's families, uh, for the most part, that's been happening with families who have resources um, and who can sort of afford the time to have maybe a mom quit her job in homeschool or, or something to that effect. But there's so many other people that are going to get lost in the mix here unless there are policy solutions um you know the, and that's another thing you know, i think republicans don't totally have the muscle memory to do because there's this opposition to class warfare especially uh, that was developed during the obama years for sure in, in very recent memory uh, because again the left was doing some crazy stuff but uh, thinking about people who are genuinely less privileged and who who don't have the resources um you know maybe they're working three jobs uh night shift whatever it is uh, just to put food on the table, uh, that's an important thing for Republicans to keep front of mind, too. And I, I mean, I'm actually pretty optimistic on that front. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think for a long time, just taking the school choice conversation, Republicans tended to frame the school choice uh, movement as something like, well, you know, it's, it's good for those 
poor inner city kids who are trapped in failing schools. And, and, and if we can just help them boost their test scores through charter schools, then they're going to live much better lives. And I think that that sort of uh, attempted centrism, uh, you know, where we had, you know, Arne Duncan and the sort of charter movement of, of the 2000s, you know, it was a, it was a nice effort. And I, I'm, I'm grateful for the people who were involved in that. But I think it's important to recognize that that's really fundamentally not why I think the strongest case is for school choice. The strongest case for school choice is just recognizing that there's a variety of values in how parents want to raise their kids. And as you've certainly seen in the post-COVID era, but you, I was writing about this before too, the public schools are, are not this sort of value neutral space where um, you know everybody comes together and all values are respected, far from it, right? And so recognizing that parents who are fed up with that kind of thing, and this is not just you know, upper class parents, this is especially middle class and working class parents who, who can't afford a private school tuition, but are just horrified by the things that their schools are, are teaching their kids, sometimes without their consent, um, giving them more purchasing power, right, to, to find a, a, a parochial school or private school or, or, uh, or a micro school, something else, giving them more ability. And, and again, all credit due to the folks in Arizona, Doug Ducey, who passed uh, one of the most expansive school choice programs in the country. Uh, and, and that's the kind of thing that we can be appealing to parents across the income spectrum saying, look, having an education that matches your values shouldn't be something that's only reserved for people who make $200,000 a year, right? We, this is something that should be, uh, that we should recognize as part of uh, giving power to parents and, and recognizing that, that parents are the ultimate uh, decision maker when it comes to how their kids should be raised. We should be leaning into uh, giving parents more ability. And in this goes, I'll just shift gears slightly from the school conversation and also to kids in tech too. And this is something that I think is a bipartisan issue. Liberal parents don't want their kids' uh, minds brainwashed by TikTok and whatever else is going on. If you give parents more ability to shape the online environment or to even get kids off of social media in the first place, I think that's a, a really big step forward for recognizing that sometimes the decisions that the market turns out are good for TikTok shareholders or for good for Mark Zuckerberg, but they're not good for kids. We know this from the data. We know this from a lot of the stuff that, that you've written about and other people as well, that, that, that the interests that big tech has are not the interests of your kids at heart. And so giving parents more ability to see what their kids are doing online, to have ability to tell kids they, they can't sign up for certain websites, having age restrictions when it comes to explicit content and that sort of thing, those are all ways of, of putting curbs on what otherwise might be sort of a free-flowing market economy and just saying, when it comes to kids, there are certain things we don't want them exposed to. We, we want kids to have, we want parents to have more ability to, to shape what their kids are facing. And so I think that is a, a, a sleeper issue that, that more and more Republicans are, are talking about. We just have to figure out the right legislative vehicle for giving parents more authority over what the kids are doing. Yeah, make sure you all follow Patrick's work over at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. We love the work that they're doing, especially on, on tech, too. That's another important point. Um, Patrick, thanks for bringing it up. You guys are doing such good stuff on that front. Claire is doing great stuff on that front. Uh, so we appreciate everything you're doing. And thank you so much for joining Federalist Radio Hour, Patrick. Emily, anytime. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. I might take you up on that anytime. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Mm -hmm.